Well, thank you. If you watch uh, the trends in the evangelical world, you're probably aware that uh, there's been a great emphasis, and it's, it's a mostly a totally positive thing over the past decade, uh, a sort of renewed emphasis on the gospel, and along with that, uh, a renewed interest on a, a renewed emphasis, rather, on the difference between law and gospel, and I think that's helpful as well. Obviously, uh, law and gospel are not the same thing. Uh, the law instructs us what to do and threatens us with condemnation if we don't. And the gospel tells us what Christ has done for us and promises us eternal life if we believe. So they're two different messages. And uh, the downside of all that emphasis is a lot of people, I think, have got the impression, unfortunately, that law and gospel are somehow hostile to one another. They're in, in disagreement or something. And you will find uh, there's been a, a, a sort of uh, a flood of new books instructing counselors to uh, avoid telling people the biblical imperatives. Don't give them the commands in Scripture, but focus on the promises. And I think uh, that has been taken so far that it's become bad advice in some cases. And what we're seeing is a resurgence of antinomianism. Antinomianism meaning a, a, a theological perspective that is hostile to the law of God. And it's not a healthy thing. And uh, you'll find, I think if you are ambivalent about holiness, if you are not the least bit troubled by the remaining sin in your life, if your sin doesn't trouble your own conscience, then that's not because you have a superior understanding of grace. And we need to we need to emphasize that with the people we counsel, don't we? Because uh, you frequently do encounter people who think that they've, they've got it all wired because of grace, and they don't have to be troubled by sin in their life anymore. Uh, and I always tell someone uh, who has that perspective, actually, that doesn't mean you have a superior understanding of grace, but it might mean that you're not a partaker of grace at all. Because authentic saving grace is never indifferent to holiness, And I want to show you that this morning from Titus chapter 2. So Titus 2 will cover verses 11 through 15, just a short passage here, with a particular focus on verses 12 and 13, those two verses. And so let me make a few preliminary remarks while while you're turning there. To confound law and gospel is no small error. As I said, they are different. They're markedly different. And it's an easy error to make, to sort of blend law and gospel. And let's be candid. It seems to be something that the fallen human heart is prone to do. There seems to be a tendency in us that inclines us to that error. It's the error that lies at the heart of every kind of legalism. And I think it is a tendency of every fallen human heart and mind to begin to default towards legalism. And it's right that we should resist that tendency. There is no more deadly blunder in all of theology than legalism. Some of the strongest words of condemnation anywhere in the New Testament were aimed at those who supplanted the promises of the gospel with the legal demands of the law. You find that in Galatians chapter 1 especially, where for two verses in a row, the Apostle Paul pronounces 
a curse on anyone who would corrupt the gospel. And he was specifically talking about a group of heretics who were supplanting the promises of the gospel with the demands of the law. So, so let's start by being clear on that. Legalism is a grave error, and it's filled with all kinds of mischief. And for multitudes, legalism actually becomes a damning delusion. However, it is also a serious blunder, also condemned in very strong terms by the Apostle Paul, to imagine that the gospel disagrees with the moral standard that is set by the law. It's likewise a grave error to think that justification by faith eliminates the need for obedience. Just because Christ has obeyed the law on our behalf doesn't mean that we don't have to obey it at all. And it's a damnable lie to tell people that the perfect freedom of God's grace gives license for unholy living. Good works, obedience to Christ's commands and encouragements and admonitions to be holy, these are necessary aspects of the Christian life, and they are, they are necessary ramifications of the gospel message. They're not necessary in the sense that, uh, that the legalist suggests in order to earn favor with God. And in fact, our, our works, our good works, are, are worthless, totally impotent for that purpose. We can't earn any kind of merit or favor with God. But obedience is a, a natural and inevitable and essential expression of love for Christ and gratitude for his grace. This is the chief practical lesson that we are taught by the principle of grace. Grace compels us to love and good works. Grace constrains us to renounce sin and to pursue righteousness. And, and if that's not happening, then whatever is at work in the person's life isn't grace. Here's the way I think of it. The gospel is more excellent than the law, but the law and the gospel don't disagree. Believing the gospel sets us free from the condemnation of the law, but it doesn't release us from the moral standard of the law. Or to say it another way, the principle of sola fide, justification by faith alone, is not hostile to good works. The gospel simply puts good works in their proper place. And if we understand the principle of sola fide, that should make us zealous for good works earnest in the pursuit of holiness, eager to obey the commands of the Lord. We don't need to be the least bit hesitant to provoke one another unto love and good works. That is what biblical counseling is all about, provoking one another to love and good works in the context of the gospel and the doctrine of grace. And that's what we're going to see in this passage we're looking at in this hour, Titus 2, 11 through 15. And let me start by reading the text. And as I read this text, listen with these questions in mind. What lessons are we supposed to learn from a biblical understanding of the principle of grace? What is grace supposed to be teaching us? And in all our talk about grace-saturated, gospel-focused, Christ-centered ministry, have we understood the principle of grace properly, or have we unwittingly fallen in step with ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness? That's what Paul is, is trying to um, straighten out here. Now, here's our passage, Titus 2, verses 11 through 15. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, let's start with a word about the context and the circumstances that prompted this epistle. Paul is writing to Titus, whom he has left in Crete, so that Titus could set in order what remained and appoint elders in every city. That's chapter 1, verse 5. So Titus's job is to train and appoint structured leadership for the churches in Crete. And Paul sends Titus this short list of qualifications for the men he is to appoint as elders in the churches. And it's essentially identical to the list Paul gave Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. And the central principle in Paul's list of elder qualifications is that leaders in the church are God's stewards, and therefore they need to be morally and reputationally above reproach. And Paul, in fact, reiterates that statement, that same expression, above reproach, twice at the start of his list in chapter 1, verse 6, and again he says it in verse 7, and he follows that with a list of specifics that simply spell out what it means to be above reproach. What does that look like? Because we are all sinners, so above reproach doesn't mean we're free from all guilt. What does it mean? And that list of qualifications that Paul gives it simply explains what it means to be above reproach. And notice as you look at that list, it's right there in front of you. So just notice that except for one thing, and that is the ability to teach which is a gift that is absolutely necessary to fulfill the calling of an elder, aside from that, all of the requirements Paul names are not skills and talents. They're character qualities. And all of them have to do with maturity and self-control and moral rectitude. That's what it's about. It's not about you know, business skills and all of that. This is the kind of man who is qualified to lead the church. He's not a clown or a comedian. He's not a frat house bad boy or a super cool trendsetter with celebrity potential written all over him. He's not an entrepreneur or an innovator or a motivational speaker. This is not supposed to be a guy with a huge ego and a gift for being glib. There's nothing here about appealing to one generation or another, nothing about artistic ability or educational degrees or political correctness, not about his business acumen, it's not about clothing style or cleverness or creativity or his knowledge of popular culture, which all of that is to say, in other words... The qualifications the Bible gives for men in positions of leadership in the church include none of the things churches today tend to weigh so heavily when they're looking for a new pastor. But the elders Titus was to train and ordain simply needed to be mature, godly, disciplined men able to handle the word of God accurately and teach its truths to others. In other words, they were trained biblical counselors. Godly men, fully mature, steadfast in the faith. 
And, and, and Paul is saying to Titus, you need to reach this ungodly culture. And it was an ungodly culture. Paul had some very unkind things to say about the culture of, of, of uh, Crete. And he doesn't say, uh, do this by entertaining them or trying to be hip. He doesn't say, try to contextualize everything you do to, to what they like. He says, instead, what you need to do is this. Choose mature, godly leaders and show this culture what godly virtue is. That's the Apostle Paul's strategy for reaching a hostile culture. And what intrigues me, and by the way, that's not being followed in most evangelical churches today. Just the opposite. Churches think you have to contextualize for the culture. Be as much like the culture as you can persuade your conscience it's okay to be. Make them think you're cool and then we'll influence the culture. And in the meantime, we're losing the culture. But what intrigues me here is how Paul uses the principle of grace to make his point. In contrast to those who would turn grace into licentiousness, Paul says the biblical principle of grace teaches us something entirely different. And in fact, I see three distinct lessons Paul says we can learn from grace, and they all have to do with how we live. In other words, these are practical, not theoretical lessons. All three lessons give us instructions and incentives for righteous living and obedience to the Lordship of Christ. That's where grace is pressing us to. And Paul says that's what grace ought to produce, not a, not a lax attitude about virtue and vice, certainly not a casual acceptance of worldly values, but really the exact opposite. The real fruit of divine grace is a godly life, a holy life. And the three lessons grace teaches us are outlined for us in verses 12 and 13. And so, but before we zero in on just those two verses, let me just point out the structure of the larger passage starting in verse 11. Did you notice the two appearances of the word appear? Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared... Verse 13, we're waiting for the appearing of Jesus Christ. It's the same basic word in the Greek, just like in English. The word in verse 11 is the verb form, to appear. The word in verse 13 is the noun form, appearance. And the Greek word has the connotation of brightness, literally to shine forth or to be brought to light. That's what it means. And those two words point to the two advents of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. Past tense. How? How specifically has the grace of God appeared? He's talking about the incarnation and ministry of Christ. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's John 1, 7. And I I think it's important to stress that what John meant when he wrote that He was not suggesting, of course, that the Old Covenant was devoid of grace. Not like grace coming with the advent of Christ was a new concept introduced into biblical theology. Not at all. Uh, He simply means that Christ is the embodiment of divine grace. Moses, on the one hand, is the lawgiver. Jesus, on the other hand, is the source and the living representative of God's grace. Law was the dominant feature of the Mosaic Covenant. Grace and truth are the dominant features of the New Covenant. 
John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John 1.14. Moses was the representative and the instrument through which the law was handed down on stone tablets, and in a similar way, Christ is the person in whom grace and truth are incarnated. But, and this is very important, Moses and Christ are not adversaries. Quite the contrary. Christ came as the fulfillment of everything Moses ever wrote about. And that includes the law. Grace fulfills the law. It doesn't overturn it. It doesn't overthrow the the morality of the law. Jesus himself said this at the start of his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, he says, but to fulfill them. So grace appeared in a unique and definitive way through the incarnation and atoning work of Christ. There was plenty of grace in the Old Testament as well. But now, here we have it incarnated in Christ, and we behold his glory, full of grace and truth. And uh, Paul refers to this again in Titus 3, verses 4 and 5, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And that's the same word appearing in Titus, as, as in Titus 2.13. Now, uh, in Titus 2.13, appearing, that that word is a reference to the second advent of Christ, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what we look forward to. Now, we don't have time to go into detail on this, but the way Paul words that statement is instructive. Here's an example where the King James Version is less helpful and virtually all the modern translations get it exactly right. This is a reference to one person, not two our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's an affirmation of the deity of Christ. And it's an exact parallel to the expression found at the end of verse 10, our God, our Savior. Jesus Christ is both our God and our Savior. Then that's part of the point Paul is making here. It is his appearing in glory that we await. And meanwhile... We live between those two advents, the two appearings. At the end of verse 12, Paul refers to that time span between the two appearings as the present age. And so he points us to the past when the grace of God appeared, past tense. He wants us to live in the present age, exemplifying the virtues of of divine grace in the hectic here and now, and he wants us to keep an an eye expectantly on the future as well as we await our blessed hope, the return of God our Savior in his full resplendence, which will be, by the way, the, the final culmination of both grace and glory. In other words, there are past, present, and future dimensions to grace, And the present dimension is the main focus of our text. While we live between the two advents, grace takes us to school. And the whole present age is the school of grace. And I see three main lessons grace teaches us. These are, by the way, hard lessons because they run contrary to the natural tendencies of our fallen flesh. 
and we have, have to keep relearning these lessons every day. But here they are. Lesson number one, grace trains us to repudiate the works of the flesh. That's lesson number one. Grace teaches us to repudiate the works of the flesh. Is this outline already in your notes? I don't remember. Okay, so I won't keep repeating the main points. But that's lesson number one, verses 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, I need to comment on verse 11, but we can't linger there. Obviously, this text is not saying that grace brings salvation to each and every person who ever lived or ever lives because... Jesus repeatedly and expressly taught that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it will be many. Matthew seven thirteen. Jesus' descriptions of the final judgment always included urgent warnings that there will be many in that day who will be told, Depart from me, You're, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Those are... Jesus' exact words. So Titus 2.11 is not teaching any doctrine of universal salvation. The, The King James Version translates the text so that it says, the grace of God has appeared to all men. But here too, I think the majority of modern translations have it right. It's salvation to all men. The ESV says, salvation for all people. And that has to be read properly in its own context. Notice the conjunction for at the beginning of the verse. It's tying the statement to what preceded it. And the statement that precedes it is actually a long discourse with a long list of people categories. Older men, older women, young women, younger men and slaves. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all kinds of people, all people, old men, old women, young girls, younger men, and slaves alike. That's what the context suggests this means. Training us all to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And that's the first lesson we learn in the school of grace. Grace, as our instructor, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. That's a direct quote from the NIV, and it's a pretty fair rendering of the sense of the text. The Greek verb is a a word that means to deny or to refuse or to disavow, to say no to. It's a strong word, very much like this English synonym I've used, repudiate. Not as strong, perhaps, as the word Paul occasionally uses elsewhere, mortify, but it's the same idea. Romans 8.13, put to death the deeds of the flesh, mortify the deeds of the flesh. Colossians 3, verse 5, put to death what is earthly in you. Galatians 5.24, crucify the flesh and its passions and desires. The sense is exactly the same here. Repudiate ungodliness and worldly lusts. How forcefully should we repudiate such things? Paul says, just go ahead and put them to death. Exterminate them. And that's the first lesson grace teaches. It's, it's what repentance is all about. The total, unconditional renunciation and disavowal of fleshly works and worldly desires. Now, this is not optional. 
the notion that repentance is optional is the very same lie that was at the center of the lordship controversy. That, that's what the book that he recommended, The Gospel According to Jesus, was written to address. It's a sort of antinomianism. We call it no lordship doctrine because the idea is you should never mention the lordship of Christ or, or, or speak of obedience in the context of giving the gospel to someone because now you're into law rather than grace. That's the, the argument. And, the, and then also a corollary to that is if the gospel doesn't call to obedience or rebuke our sin, then repentance can't really be a part of saving faith. It has to be something extraneous to faith. And so it eliminates repentance as well. And that sort of old-style no-lordship doctrine is found mainly in old-school dispensationalist circles. But it's a close cousin of the type of thinking that is currently becoming more and more popular in certain segments of the contemporary Reformed community. The idea is that every demand for obedience and every appeal for holiness is by definition legalistic and pietistic and moralistic and there are some very popular teachers that teach this it's pretty much a one note theme for Steve Brown you hear him sometimes on the radio uh, saying that any call to holiness or obedience is legalistic and moralistic and, and pietistic and therefore those things are to be avoided as if they were such a serious threat to the gospel and the principle of grace that we should just set them aside that's a foolish way to think We all understand, I hope, that sanctification is not effortless and automatic. And yet we also realize that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And if you think that every appeal for holiness sounds like legalism, you've got a problem. On the other hand, if you think the actual remedy for defeat in the Christian life is to just double down and work all the harder at achieving holiness, then you've got a problem as well. And above all, you have a skewed view of grace if you think grace eliminates the necessity for holiness. You have a skewed view of grace if you think grace simply overthrows righteousness and in favor of a free and easy kind of forgiveness. Whether you think that brand of free grace, that's what they like to call it, it thinks, if you think it sounds dangerous or you think it sounds fun, if you, if you think grace renders all moral duty moot, you don't understand grace at all. And contemporary evangelicals are dangerously susceptible to both legalism and licentiousness because evangelicals have been toying with a superficial understanding of grace for generations. It's a problem that goes back, I think, probably more than a century. Grace was first degraded into an escape hatch from hell. And then it was portrayed as a means of personal fulfillment. And nowadays it's generally perceived as a principle that nullifies the need to be or to to do what is right. And that is what some people think grace is, a principle that nullifies the need to be or do right. I'm tempted to say that may be the dominant idea in the contemporary evangelical attitude towards sanctification. It's a flat-out lie. 
And it, it, it is emphatically refuted by the Apostle Paul right here. The grace of God teaches us to renounce ungodliness. Now, notice, this first lesson alone makes a stark contrast to the conventional notion of grace. Grace is not a syrupy sentiment that, that makes, uh, makes us always passive and positive. Grace itself is described here as dynamic, It's the active expression of God's favor. It's undeserved favor. More than that, it's the exact opposite of what we do deserve. But it's a potent and powerful force. It's not just a a free ticket for your sin. By grace, God lays hold of undeserving sinners, clothes them with his righteousness, unites them spiritually with Christ, awakens their dead souls, removes the stony heart, and, and gives them a living, tender heart of flesh, and then blesses them with every spiritual blessing. And the first response grace elicits from the regenerate heart is a negative confession. We renounce ungodliness and worldly possession or worldly passions. In other words, the first motion of repentance is a work of grace. It's a gift from God. Did you realize that? Repentance is a gift from God. It's it's a work of grace. Every aspect of authentic repentance is motivated and energized by grace. The person who has not repented hasn't received grace at all. He may talk a lot about grace, but he doesn't know what it is if he's never repented. You know, we speak of irresistible grace. That's a common theological expression. I like it. Because it it conveys the sense that grace is dynamic, not passive. It's irresistible. But that expression is also subject to misunderstanding. When we say grace is irresistible, we don't mean that God employs some kind of coercion or or duress. It's not that he he drags us or or arm twists us in order to come to Christ. Grace is irresistible, in the same sense that I find my wife irresistible. It's not that she threatens or forces me to bend to her will, normally, (laughs) but that I am captivated by, in a positive way, by her inherent appeal. Grace is irresistible in the same way, in in a similar but even more profound way. Divine grace draws us to Christ by attraction, not by constraint. And if you have been drawn to Christ by grace, if you truly love him, then you'll hate everything that opposes him. That's how the same grace that draws us to Christ teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This, I think, is the very same truth Paul has in mind in Romans 2, verse 4, when he says that God's kindness is supposed to lead you to repentance. You've heard of Martin Luther and how he nailed his 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Just listen to the first of those 95 theses. He wrote, quote, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. I agree with that. We renounce ungodliness and worldly passions on a daily basis. 
And it is grace, properly understood, that instructs us to repent, not only at the beginning of our Christian life, but it then prompts and energizes us daily to repent from then on. That's, a, that's lesson number one that we learn from grace, to repudiate the works of the flesh. Here's a second lesson, number two. Grace teaches us to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. Second half of verse 12. Grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, notice the threefold stress on sobriety, righteousness, and godliness. That first term, self-controlled, is from a Greek word that literally refers to soundness of mind. The connotation is self-control, moderation. The King James Version says soberly, and the New American Standard Bible says sensibly, and all of those ideas are inherent in this word. The ESV says self-controlled, and that's also a, a decent English synonym. But it's a big idea. The idea is not merely temperance and moderation, but also wisdom and prudence and circumspection, clarity of mind. It's describing a virtue whose chief benefit accrues to the individual himself. Grace teaches us to be clear-headed and to exercise cautious self-control. The second term there describes a virtue that that, uh, defines our relationships with others. Grace trains us to live righteously. The ESV and the NIV both use the word upright. I looked this up in a commentary by John Gill. He's an old Baptist, 100 years before Spurgeon, wrote a great commentary, and I always check to see what he says on a passage. And he said, quote, This speaks of living righteously among men, giving to every man his due, and dealing with all according to the rules of equity and justice as being made new men, created unto righteousness and true holiness, and as being dead to sin through the death of Christ, and so living unto righteousness, or in a righteous manner, and as being justified by the righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. Notice how many times he used the word righteousness. He's saying here, this covers every dimension of righteousness, both practical and forensic. But because the context is clearly about how we live our lives, I think the stress here is on our dealings with one another, our dealings with our fellow human beings. Upright living, that's the fruit of grace's training. And then the third term, godly, by definition, has a Godward focus. So grace teaches us our duty with respect to God, our neighbor, and ourselves. So keep that in mind. If we have time, we'll come back to it. But notice the threefold focus there. Grace is instructing us with regard to ourselves, with regard to our neighbors, with regard to our relationship with God. That this third word, godly, is an adjective that means pious. The Greek word is etymologically the exact opposite of the word that's translated ungodliness earlier in the verse. Ungodliness is asebia. Godly is eusebos. They're negative and positive forms of the very same root. Grace teaches us to shun impiety and to live piously. It's all very simple and straightforward. Notice, Paul is not giving Titus here some complex and mysterious idea. 
It's quite simple. Grace, uh, that's authentic grace, biblical grace, not the shabby modern evangelical substitute, but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to repudiate the works of the flesh and cultivate the fruits of the Spirit. Paul, in fact, fruit of the Spirit, of course, that's Galatians 5. Paul teaches this very same idea in Galatians 5, where he contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, let me read it to you. Galatians 5, verses 18 through 24, he writes, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And I have to pause there and say, of course, believers are not under the law, but under grace. And so what Paul is doing in this passage, what he's about to say here, will make a clear contrast between what the flesh produces under the yoke of the law versus what the Spirit produces, the Holy Spirit produces in us through the liberty of grace. So as I read this passage, listen for that contrast and notice that the only commodity our fallen flesh can possibly produce, all of it, is corrupt works. But the Spirit's work in us is called fruit, and it is entirely virtuous. So here's the contrast. Verse 19, Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By the way, those are the very same things Titus 2.12 is saying we should repudiate the, the works of the flesh, ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, here are the things we should cultivate, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And notice this, against such there is no law. Again, grace and law are distinct, but they're not in disagreement Paul goes on in Galatians 5.24 to say this, And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, what defines us as Christians is this very thing. We do repudiate the works of the flesh. Grace, not the law, but grace is what trains us and motivates us and empowers us to do this. And at the same time, grace teaches us to cultivate the fruits of the Spirit. And so, lessons one and two that we learn in the, in the school of grace. One, to repudiate the works of the flesh. Two, to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. And now third, to anticipate the blessedness of eternity. And here is the key distinction between law and grace. For any thoughtful, self-aware honest worshiper, the effect of the law alone, apart from grace, is sheer terror. If you ever really thought about the law, apart from grace, that's what it should provoke, just sheer terror because we are sinners and the law threatens sinners with absolute and utter destruction. But grace, by contrast, fills us with the expectation and anticipation of blessings that will last for eternity. 
Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You want to know why we need to distinguish between grace and law? This is it. In, in short, the eschatology of grace is different from the eschatology of law, where the law pronounces condemnation and swears eternal vengeance. Grace pronounces a blessing and promises eternal reward. Grace teaches us then to live in the light of that hope. All the lessons grace teaches us are incentives for holiness, all of them. Our hatred of unrighteousness, the debt we owe to Christ's righteousness, the reward we are promised in eternity, all of those things are incentives for us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. And notice, this was the very aim of Christ. This was his whole point in redeeming us in the first place. Verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, don't tell me there's anything inherently legalistic about being zealous for good works. And don't tell me grace rules out any kind of good works. Zeal for good works is, according to the Apostle Paul, the ultimate objective of grace, to make us zealous for good works. Now, bear in mind, and back to what I said in the beginning, this passage purposely covers all tenses and all perspectives, past, present, future, self, others, and God, in every respect except one, the lessons of grace are in perfect harmony with what the law teaches us. They say the same thing. In fact, the law was only a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ so we could learn the advanced version of the lesson from grace. They say the same thing. Both law and grace say we should renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Both law and grace say that we should live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Both law and grace humble us and show us the virtue of self-control. Both law and grace say that we should live righteously and love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Both law and grace instruct us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So in every respect, grace is in perfect agreement with the commands and directives of the eternal moral law of God. Don't ever entertain the thought that law and grace or law and gospel contradict one another. They don't. But there is this one vital distinction between law and grace, and the difference lies in this third lesson. The law threatens us with destruction because we can't obey it perfectly. Grace gives us both the desire and the power to obey. That's what Philippians 2.13 says. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The will and the energy are both uh, gracious gifts from God. So while the law and grace agree in that they both urge us to be holy, the law can only condemn us for our failure and threaten us with destruction. But grace is the remedy for our failure, and it guarantees eternal blessing. It's a pretty big difference, but it's not a disagreement in, in... in the message about holiness. 
The one key difference, succinctly put, is that the law cannot give life. It can only bring death. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We're saved through sanctification by the Spirit, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. The gracious work of the Spirit in our hearts is what guarantees our sanctification. Listen to Romans 8, 3, and 4. God has done what law, the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And what? Thereby overturned and eliminated the moral imperatives of the law? Not at all. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so the distinction between law and grace has nothing whatsoever to do with the commandments or the moral content of the law. What grace eliminates and overthrows are the curses of the law. As far as the moral imperatives of the law are concerned, grace is in full agreement. And Paul expressly says so in Galatians 3, verse 6. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, he says, for... If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. That's Galatians 3.21. In other words, the problem with the law was our inability and our lack of desire to will and to work for God's good pleasure. And grace is the remedy for that. And the result, verse 14, that we should be redeemed from all lawlessness and purified for Christ, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And there's nothing the least bit legalistic about that zeal. I hope you're zealous for good works. The command Paul gives in Titus uh, gives to Titus in, in verse 15 of this chapter has implications not only for those of us who teach and pastor, but also for everyone who does any biblical counseling, and really for any Christian attempting to live a consistent life to the honor and glory of Christ. As we encourage and admonish one another, this is a command for all of us. Paul says, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. 